Greetings, friends of the great beyond. This is your ghost, I mean host, ready to take you behind the veil of terror and leftist critique. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. And he hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Horror Vanguard. And we are super excited to have another guest joining the Spine Gang from the fantastic spooky left podcast, Black Banner Magic. Nesta is with us. How you doing, man? Oh, you know, I'm doing all right. Just here, here to give my best <laughs> non-poser takes. <laughs> no. So, yeah, thank you for having me on the show. I really appreciate that. I've been wanting before to talk we, about this movie for a while. Before we before we jump into uh, into the movie, um, what we do with everybody who is a guest on Horror Vanguard is for people who maybe do not haven't come across you, haven't come across your work online. Do you want to take maybe uh, just a couple of minutes and give a kind of brief praise on Black Banner Magic, your work, what the podcast is about, and anything else you feel like people should know. Sure, yeah. Uh, Black Banner Magic is a spinoff of uh, Rev Left Radio, uh, Revolutionary Left Radio from Brett. Uh, I started it so I could uh, basically get all that podcast money so I could fund a, <laughs> a jail bail fund that we have here in Omaha. It gets uh, marginalized people out of jail that can't afford the, the ransom themselves. Um, I identify as an anarchist. I've been involved with... Uh, prison abolition uh, stuff for probably 10 years now. I'm doing prisoner support and uh, prison abolition, uh, just hoping to see that, that edifice burn one day. Um, but the, the podcast itself is uh, an intersection between uh, politics, uh, left politics, and the occult, which that's a broad overarching term, I guess. Uh, anything from uh, folk magic to uh, uh, Passadism. Uh, awesome. That is, that is really, really cool. And, <laughs> that is the gamut. Um, and it is amazing that the, the podcast and you are so involved in prison abolition. I think that's an incredibly vital area of uh, leftist work at the moment. Um, Absolutely. And we're, we're continuing the rich tradition of using Horror Vanguard as an excuse for me to talk to other like I guess uh, content creators to use to use that term that I really enjoy. I'm a huge fan of Black Banner Magic, especially the um, I think it's the episode you did with Meredith Graves. I've listened to that. Oh, it's like, such a good episode. It's, it's such a good episode. Maybe somewhere north of seven trillion times now. It's like engraved <laughs> into my brain. But fantastic stuff. Thank you. She was an amazing uh, get for me. I was not expecting people to uh, actually be positive and uh, like wanting to come on. Like. It's a weird concept because obviously uh, leftist politics tends to really focus on the material, which obviously mm -hmm. we need to. Uh, oh, yeah. Meeting material needs. But sometimes the incredibly online left takes materialism so far that, that they don't believe in anything else outside of the imperial science of Marxism. Uh, which Absolutely. is exactly exactly where I think your interests and uh, ours as gothic Marxists sort of intersect on this kind of emerging front of, of what we have been half jokingly referring to as the spooky left. Um, but 
what, one more thing maybe that you could say just a little bit more about for people who maybe haven't thought about this issue in uh, kind of how it connects to wider leftist struggle, maybe you could kind of give a, a brief kind of uh, intellectual way into thinking about something like prison abolition. Well, uh, the the prison abolition is uh, it's bondage, and uh, there's a lot of uh, like when you're working with the uh, the Goetia, the Lesser Key of Solomon. Um, there's a lot of demon binding, but it's not like a it's not a authoritarian sort of binding. It's uh, calling yeah. on calling on a, uh, a spirit or a, an entity and uh, creating a perimeter to hold them in, but they're not bound there. You do not have uh, control over them anymore. They're just there to interact with you. Prisons do not work that way. That is just straight up bondage. That's putting somebody in a cage and forgetting about them. Um, and uh, there's not a whole lot of like occult crossover with the actual uh, prison abolition. That's the the material side of it. That's doing the actual uh, work. But a lot of people say that they, they become more spiritual if they're uh, not beforehand. When they go into jail, go into prison, they have a lot of time to read. Um, famously, uh, Damien Eccles of the uh, satanic teens uh, that got accused of murder. So Damien Eccles um, spent a lot of time in solitary confinement. Uh, he was allowed to read books. He started getting into... Uh, magic books. He was reading um, the Lamegaton. He was reading the uh, Ars Goetia, the Ars Notorium, and uh, he was able to summon uh, entities, demons, beings, and that act- he attributes that to like actually holding on to his sanity while he was in mm. uh, solitary confinement. Now, his uh, case was overturned. Um, the West Memphis three. That's what I was trying to remember. Uh, his case was finally overturned. They uh, realized hey, his kids had nothing to do with it. Um, he now goes out and speaks about uh, prison abolition, how magic saved his life while he was in prison. Um, people that are familiar know that like Eddie Vedder was involved, heavily involved with uh, benefit shows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But more broadly, the show itself... Um, I I really have always enjoyed the, the spookier side of stuff and it has a, a real potential, like there's real magic out there to uh, engage with. Like um, bell bonds are a, a binding spell or like uh, bureaucracy is ritualized. It There's, I don't know, there's a lot of long walks I can go in short tangents, but it, it's <laughs> it's difficult to... Uh, sum up, I guess, because the occult, of course, being the hidden, it, it takes a lot mm-hmm. to kind of parse it out. Yeah, it, it, it does kind of resist uh, sound bites, doesn't it? Yes. But but if you are a fan of Horror Vanguard, if you listen to our show, uh, hopefully that little little taste has given you some insight into what Black Banner Magic is all about. Both Ash and I are huge fans, um, so we, we cannot recommend... Uh, the podcast and everything that you're doing highly enough uh, with that said let's uh let's jump into what we what we are all here to do 
Uh, today we are talking about 2018's Lords of Chaos. Lords and of so- Chaos. <laughs> I'm so uh, jealous of your metal voice, by the way. Like I've been uh, like a, a a metal slash crust punk slash doom weirdo <laughs> for the longest time, and I just can't do it. It's just not in me to to have the true brutality to sing like that. So uh, credit, credit credit to you, Nestor. I'm impressed. Uh, and I know all of the listeners won't be able to tell, but we are all of us wearing spectacular corpse paint at the moment. <laughs> uh, we had to get into the kind of right mental space to talk about Lords of Chaos. Uh, so for those of you who have not seen this film, <laughs> I, I'm going to do what I always do and ask Ash to provide his normal, uh, incredibly detailed synopsis slash praise. And as always, here be spoilers. So before uh, before before I do that, I need to share that the the first time I ever tried the whole corpse paint thing uh, going to a show uh, because because first and foremost I am an abject loser and uh, kind of socially inept. So so I was in my head I was like hell yeah I'm gonna be so brutal this corpse paint is gonna look amazing like like gonna have a great time out at the show. I put on the corpse paint. I get to the show, and literally, people keep asking me why is a juggalo here. <laughs> so, really fucked that up. Oh man, that is a that is like that's a god tier level burn. Oh oh yeah, that that was uh I was roasted. I was uh, one could say I was roasted so hard I was blackened by the experience. Hey, buzzing. <laughs> well, at least you have not actually worn uh, juggalo makeup. I can't say that I haven't. Um, I mean, so. I, I can't say the same thing. So, <laughs> I'm I'm learning a lot about my two comrades on today's episode. Everybody, <laughs> oh, well, one day, one day we're going to cover big money hustlers, and that's going to be like the the the, the secret golden six hundred and sixty sixth episode of Horror Vanguard. And I, big money. I, I'm going to change my name and leave when we're on episode six six five. Oh yeah, so uh, Juggalos—that's that's the tangent we're getting in the uh, black metal episode. I love it. Well, it does have the—it radiates the same energy. Angsty boys that don't have any other outlets and don't have real any real uh, obstacles to overcome, so they they create them themselves. A hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, with that yeah, in mind, no, with, with, that, with that in mind, I'm, I'm sorry, just going like, to try and get us right back on track. Yeah, you're going to have you're going to have to take the reins on this one because now my mind is wandering on like, okay, like what are the comparative politics between Violent J and like I don't know Mayhem. Speaking of Mayhem, <laughs> oh, that's a segue. Bum, bum, bum. Uh, so the the movie we watched, as uh, John mentioned, is 2018's Lord uh, Lord Lord Lords of Chaos. Lords of Chaos is a uh, uh, true crime question mark, uh, some documentary question mark about the the birth of true Norwegian black metal and the band Mayhem. Uh, we follow uh, uh, the band's founder, Euronymous, as he uh, befriends people, puts the band together, uh, goes through the uh, now infamous trials and tribulations of the band, including the... Uh, Tragic suicide of dead, uh, Faust murder of a gay man, and Varg being an absolute loser the entire time. The movie itself is uh, somewhere between like a uh, almost like a stand by me feel good coming of age film. <laughs> I was I was not I was not expecting <laughs> I was not expecting either of you 
to have a go-to comparison of Stand By Me. <laughs> oh, well, have you seen the recent remake of A Star Is Born? Because it's this, but with corpse paint. <laughs> so, so while I was watching this, I was thinking like, like, okay, like this is like Stand By Me, Stand By Me meets SLC Punk, but for goths. Uh. I was gonna say it's the craft, but for angry boys. <laughs> Holy shit, that is the truest thing I've ever heard. I just felt like part of the universe was unlocked for me. <laughs> uh, that, that makes a whole lot of sense. Um, but, but to kind of, kind of sum, sum up the ethos of the movie, all, all of that uh, is, is, is being played against the, the, um, a rough attempt at, at a historical presentation of, of the start of the band. Now, there's been a lot of uh, discussion in the broader metal community over how accurate this film both intended to be or was in the end, uh, including the entirely invented character of On Merit, played by Sky Fiera. But we'll get into that um, later. On uh, the movie, the movie follows the the uh, band Mayhem and the uh, cast of people around them as they burn churches throughout Norway, kill a couple people, record a couple uh, historically relevant albums, and eventually do the most important thing that perhaps they're responsible for, which is getting the three of us together to record this episode. <laughs> yes. The, on the, the only good thing Vog can take <laughs> the smallest bit of credit for. <laughs> when a lot of people... Uh, so... If people aren't aware, this movie has actually been either talked about or in production for almost 12 years or maybe 11 years. Mm -hmm. um, it began with uh, Vice doing this like short documentary called uh, True Norwegian Black Metal. And mm -hmm. they they didn't really touch on Mayhem too much. It was more other bands. But then they realized, oh, well, there's this book about Mayhem and uh, the scene uh, written by Michael Moynihan. Uh, incredible actual fascist uh, like self-identifying fascist um, and that book is terrible it's awful it, it goes on weird tangents about Odinism and the, the true mm -hmm. Aryan race it's a lot of uh, bullshit that was made up around the the mythos of Mayhem and of Varg himself and the that book was uh, optioned by Vice uh, Moynihan got a lot of money from Vice which is not uncommon that they they're deeply in bed with really shitty people because they that's always been the joke vice is like uh, yeah nazi light but um not sure how much he actually made from the book sale but i know that the uh the his name is in like the opening credits so i think he got quite a big chunk and people are saying oh well it's not going to be truthful you know the lords of chaos book was not truthful uh, there's a lot of stories that the band built themselves about mm -hmm. eating dead's brain or uh making yeah. a chain out of or the necklace out of the brain um and a lot of it probably isn't real like you said uh Anne Marit is a complete fabrication just to move the story along so mm -hmm. i like that uh i like that people are conscious of that and not just saying oh that's for posers it's it's a hollywood movie it's for posers but actually having a take that says you know, a lot of that's bullshit and I don't know what is real and what isn't. But then there's other people saying, oh, you can't make a true black metal movie. You can't make black metal into a movie. It's it's not gritty enough. But, but a callback to one of my favorite episodes of the Horror Vanguard, the true black metal movie is The Black Tower. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Yes, I am 100 percent here for this. Um. So, OK, as, as I as I as I maybe mentioned on Twitter, uh, 
you know, I am amazingly this very, very English person <laughs> on, on, on the podcast. It's not a huge metalhead. So can we, let's maybe take a step back and maybe think about what, uh, maybe the two of you can maybe talk to what what does it mean to talk about Norwegian black metal? What is that? Um, what role does Mayhem kind of play in its emergence? And and what is its kind of connection to politics, more broadly speaking? Maybe the two of you can k- kind of run with that question a little bit. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, uh, Mayhem and uh, Norwegian black metal, it's actually second wave black metal. They didn't create mm-hmm. the genre. They just kind of adapted it to their own style. Um, It grew out of uh, death metal in mostly in Sweden. Um, Bathory, uh, uh, Celtic Frost, um, all these uh, speed and black metal or speed and death metal bands, which um, uh, the director of this movie was briefly like for a very small sliver of time was the drummer of Bathory. And he kind of runs on that whole uh, street cred of oh well, I was actually in this scene so I give it a little bit of credence um, yeah but the the music itself it was it was a uh, not really slower in tempo really but uh, the the drums are still as fast but there's uh, less noodling I guess there's more like just brutal riffs and that's what yeah uh, Norwegian yeah. black metal is. And you can you can um trace trace like all of this back to like uh Coven from Chicago or uh Black the very British Black Sabbath. Hell and yeah. um the, the the aesthetic of bands like um uh Screamin' J or uh musicians like Screamin' Jay Hawkins and uh Lord Such and stuff like that, who incorporated a lot of um although the the two of them were very camp, the, it was the beginning of like the the shock rock movement and bringing like these uh gothic and horror iconographic elements into the music scene and chiefly the uh album by venom that was actually titled black metal which they later uh said oh no you know we're not like actually satanists we're not evil people (laughs) we just like the the image but uh um oisin uh he fully bought into it to believe like yeah mm-hmm. that's true black metal that's really interesting it kind of brings up a uh, an interesting point there's one moment where they're all talking in the film about uh Euronymous is talking about how so much of this kind of like uh death metal and speed metal is just about um you know drinking and having a good time and there's the these props that they've sort of brought in um and i guess that ties into what we've kind of broadly touched on here which is like making a film like this is really difficult because mayhem is such a kind of self-mythologizing band right there's this uh they they do these things because they're like well this will be this will be extreme this will be real this will be kind of authentic and i just wondered what you both thought about the kind of politics of authenticity that's going on in this so I think I, f- I find like a lot of these these mu- like I guess quote unquote music subcultures that are are predominantly the uh, playgrounds of uh, uh, people who I would share a demographic with you know like uh, cisgendered white dudes of like a lower or more middle class income and I think a lot of a lot of the like 
oh, you know, like you're a sellout. That's not punk or, you know, this isn't true black metal. That band's a poser because they don't do this, that or the other. And these these kind of um, these taxa, these categories are ever shifting too. like there there is no one set agreed upon list of things that a true poser does or does not do. And, mm. and ultimately it kind of winds up being, I think a function of the fact that like a, a lot of people in this demographic are kind of, I guess, culturally stranded for lack of a better word. You know, like there's the, like, we've, we've been stripped of our class conscious. We we're, we're all like diaspora weirdos living in the United States you know, to- toxic masculinity forbids us from building real bonds with each other. So instead, we have to like start measuring the spikes on wrist cuffs. And if it's not like <laughs> greater than or equal to three and three eighths inches, you are in fact a poser. The the, the authentic- authenticity. I mean, uh, obviously, the only authentic uh, black metal person that was in the Norwegian scene was dead because he oh yeah he killed himself. He was the most brutal. That's why that photo appeared on the the bootleg uh, live cover of uh, his yep. suicide uh, bed he, he like that was the, the mythos that built everything it's like oh well if you don't kill yourself you're not really cult you're not really the the person that's living uh, a living dead boy um and like he would bury his clothes he would uh, mm-hmm. huff dead animals before the show like the the movie yeah. shows um like he wasn't trying to have a like a an aesthetic. It was just something that he was uh, deeply uh, drawn to, which fatally he was deeply drawn to. Mm-hmm. And it was yeah. I think it was a lot more uh, psychological than it was trying to put on this image for people. So yeah, absolutely. He was very much like a. I don't know with uh, like like almost, almost like this is a really oh my god my brain is so cursed he's kind of like Bjork in that way. <laughs> <laughs> okay, go on. Okay. All, right, all right, Ash, explain. No, but, but, but in the, but in that like in in a much more tragic because you know you know, dead dead dead's case is truly tr- truly a tragedy and the way the way the movie presented that was I felt like the, the, this movie didn't really know what to do with a lot of the real tragedies that that was going on that, that went on inside of the formation of the band it didn't really know how to play them i mean this is something that i wanted to bring up actually i think you're completely right because i was watching i was watching like the first i don't know 15 20 minutes going like these guys are adorable yeah, it's, it's so feel good right that that first you know that first, like, like hanging out yeah. in some dead-end town and like writing graffiti and running away from the authority figures and then you go to a party like out in the woods and get drunk and you know put on your fancy clothes and your makeup to make yourself look cool i was like that's adorable and then the problem become comes when that image actually takes on a kind of real status because they find the lead singer, they find dead. And like, there's that scene where the two of them go into the woods with a rifle because they want to shoot the cat because dead hates cats. And he ends up like saying, you know, one shot to the head and all of your pain is over. And I'm like, suddenly all of that kind of feel good drains away. And I'm like, Ooh, this suddenly got very real, very quickly. And uh, Euronymous is clearly not able to deal with any of that. Yeah, I think that the movie actually did a really good job of showing how how 
big of dorks they were. Like they were just teenage yeah. dorky kids, and then yeah. they bought they into were this massive image. dorks. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> like uh, Pele uh, did, he. I think that he probably had uh, like psychopathic tendencies, like the killing the small animals. Uh, yeah, usually like mm-hmm. leads up to being a serial killer or a mass murderer or something. But I think maybe like he did the best thing possible because he started the kill spree with himself. And then after then can't go anywhere else. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at, at, at the very least, like there was some kind of, like, I mean, like, I don't know. It's, it's hard to like, or I guess, I guess rather I should say like, I'm apprehensive to like podcast psychoanalyze a guy who died a right. long time ago or not a long time ago, but relative, but, um, like, like at the very least there's something really tragic about that and like like it made me like this movie so many times made me think of slc punk you know like because when when dead dies it made me think of heroin bob's overdose mm-hmm. and and the the overdose of heroin bob and slc punk is really the tone shift of the movie right mm-hmm. it's steve it's steve realizing the inherent contradiction between his his attempt to fight authority as like uh, a punk rocker who goes to shows and gets in slap fights with like like the 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 town's two dorky street neo-nazis or like fake cowboy men or something and and his yeah. actual desire for real systemic change and like while i i have my qualms with the mo- like slc punk's ending where he resolves that by becoming a lawyer or something like that yeah he, he um, buys in he doesn't sell out yeah yeah and like while i have qualms with that ending nevertheless the movie kind of grapples with like the the inherent play acting and like quote-unquote larping that comes with like certain punk attitudes but this movie like like there's a similar tone shift with with dead's death you see euronymous kind of you know he he has he has this moment to realize like like oh oh shit things are going down this path but instead of backing out he doubles down makes the fake uh skull necklace and and starts down this path yeah, because he he goes to he go he goes to pick up the phone, doesn't he? Because he walks into this like uh, cabin in the woods huh, where uh, they've been staying and finds and finds his friend's dead body, and you there's that horrible you see the kind of moment of realization where he picks up the phone and calls the emergency services and then immediately hangs up, mm-hmm. and you're like, oh no no, now now you've committed you've committed to this kind of like self-created mythos right and like as a character within the text of this film i felt a lot for that right because because you can kind of feel that euronymous is under a lot of pressure he wants to be the the scary guy of metal like he he wants to push things he he wants to be in charge he wants the fame he wants to be a musician Mm. and 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 you can feel the the pressure of that behind him going like like because we, we get the later scene where we find out he actually cried we when he when he saw dead's body and that the other stuff happens in in kind of in concert with that and then the brain yeah. the brain or the skull necklaces are fake or their chicken bone or whatever but you you kind of feel that tension but the movie as a, as a larger product i i feel like kind of didn't do justice to the tension in euronymous's character like if, if, that, if that makes any sense like like we have we have this moment where he is he, he he's committing to all of all of the like the self mythology. He's committing to all of these lies in a way that's very obviously going to end in greater and greater tragedy un- until he does the hard work of backing out, 
which mm. which also like like conveniently enough mirrors like uh, uh, de-radicalization, which I, I found to be as an in- another interesting side note. No, I was thinking exactly the same thing. Yeah, when Euronymous as a person, Oyston uh, Arseth as a person, not the, the character Euronymous, mm-hmm. like he he was that like uh, egocentric uh, kind of person that wanted to be like the leader of something and. He saw that moment. He was like, "Oh, well, we're trying to be brutal. This is the best way to show that I'm brutal. I'm gonna not show any affection for this friend of mine that just died in gruesome way. Um, I'm gonna exploit this to the maximum potential and grow my brand, basically." Um, but the the movie depiction of it, it's very real. It's unflinching. You, there's no yeah. cutaway scene. There's no like the camera pans up and there's blood splatter it's all there right in your face it's um i actually saw it in the theater a friend of mine uh me and a friend uh we kind of skipped out on work to go see it in the theater and uh nice. he actually he left the theater during that scene because obviously we both both knew the story coming into it but uh mm-hmm. like he got up and walked out of the theater for a couple minutes while that happened it's yeah 15 feet high saying that is incredibly traumatizing but uh i think it, the movie itself it, it shows the it, like tries to show that's the self-neglect within uh not only dead's character but the actual person that did that that uh, he had serious issues that were unresolved and it wasn't due to lack of uh infrastructure like he had mm-hmm. the, the nordic uh model of uh quote-unquote socialism like he had the resources there he just did not take them up yeah, I definitely. Um, I, I think like like I, I, weird way to phrase this, but um, the 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 first like fifteen or twenty minutes, like the the parts of the and then later on, um, as Euronymous is uh, kind of remembering back back to it, and the film is is treating as a textual object. But um, like the parts of this movie that have dead, the character are are the parts of this movie that have the most heart, and 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 they have the yeah, most yeah. emotional weight, and and like honestly are, are are moving in in certain certain respects because like this this is like I, I was not like like because like you know we, we joked about this a second ago but like this movie does start with a really like feel good like like oh it's it's a it's a bunch of goofy teens trying to be mm. the next spooky band and they're they've got like upside down cross graffiti and you know it's like like all all this stuff we've we've been there am i right but but um <laughs> When we get when we get to the stuff with dead, like so much emotional weight is is packed into all of those scenes, yeah. That that I, I feel like the rest of the movie doesn't quite know how to carry it, and yeah. and like like I I was left like wanting more of that, like more exploration of that character, more like like you know res- resolution isn't the right word because how could you ever resolve something like that in in a true sense true cult emotional resolution <laughs> when well, it but, does um, show oh yeah Go it, on. Do, it does show like a a gradual degradation of uh just being desensitized like dead's oh, death yeah. is very graphic and that's the first death in the movie and then mm-hmm. the man that's stabbed in the little hammer by faust he makes yeah. he screams and he tries to fight away but it's not nearly as graphic and then when uh, spoiler <laughs> when uh, <laughs> Euronymous dies like they're still having a conversation he was stabbed mm-hmm. something like 23 times and they're still like having a conversation like no no I, 
I just talk like that. And that's like after 15 stabs and he's still just yeah, like, yeah. no, please let's talk this through. Like the, the gruesomeness actually declines the more murders that happen. Yeah. You become kind of inured to it. Right. right. I mean, one of the things that this kind of made me think of, um, especially given that they're all so young and they're all in this kind of like nihilistic transgressive phase of like, oh, how just how edgy can we be before before dead turns up um, is um, Myth of Sisyphus by Camus. I mean, Camus famously says the opening line is there, the, the one serious philosophical problem is the problem of suicide. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what the introduction of dead does to this whole film because you go well yeah you can have your you can have your aesthetic you can have you can be the kind of spookiest most evil band but ultimately you run up against that insolvable serious problem and that's that as i i'm going back to it it's that scene in the woods where um he grabs the butt of the rifle and puts it against his forehead and he goes do it pull the trigger do it do it and he can't do it and he can't engage with that most serious of problems until Dead makes that choice for him, you know, forces him to confront it. And when you confront that in all of its kind of violence and 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 horror, it's not a surprise that everything else that comes after it is much easier. Uh, there's one kind of throwaway line when they're like they're walking past the TV that's talking about one of the church burnings, and it turns out like mm-hmm. firefighters have died. Yes. And they're, and they're never mentioned and they never seem to like worry about the fact that burning down these churches is like killing people. Uh, so you, I think you're totally right. There's a kind of process of, of slow desensitization and an accelerating extremism as well, right? And I think back on the, like the uh, authentic uh, idea of like who's true cult, uh, mm-hmm. Varg saw that, like, well, at the time Christian saw that. And he wanted to be in that. Like, he believed it. Like, he saw these guys that are, like, uh, Dead's cutting himself on stage. And, uh, like, they're being the most brutal they could possibly be. And yeah. uh, Christian comes up after that show, which in real life, that was supposed to happen in Leipzig, which I'd looked on uh, the Google Maps. That would have been, like, a 25-hour one-way trip from Bergen. So if he really did that, he was incredibly... Uh, intrigued by this band to go 24 hours out of his way onto a, another country. But uh, he walks up and he's like, hey, I really like you guys. You, like, you sound really good. And the only thing that Euronymous does is points at his scorpion patch and says, scorpions, and then walks away. <laughs> and then the, the following scenes are uh, Christian is like in his very bright, large uh, apartment back in Bergen. Like a uh, not scary at all, but he's sitting at his kitchen table eating peanut butter and toast with corpse paint on. Just incredibly yeah. hilarious. Like he's practicing to be cold. And uh, between Bergen and Oslo, it's like a four hour drive. And I don't think that Varg really ever lived in Oslo. I think he always stayed in Bergen until he was arrested. <clears throat> so that meant whenever he wanted to go see Mayhem or be involved in this this scene, he made an eight-hour round trip, and like, I was thinking that's that's almost like the the process of proletarianization, where he's leaving his uh, like his idyllic mountain town to go join this scene that he likes this uh, this uh, form that he has found that he wants to be part of, and uh, mm. 
like and it's shown in the the film like the dank basement of uh helvete the record store it's like this dripping water and like old stone and then he goes back to his apartment and it's bright clean and uh, white walls and white furniture everywhere and it's a yeah a weird uh combination like he he wants this evil darkness but then he goes back to his very nice home that his mother pays for I, th- I think um the the one scene like I really really loved uh, Emery Cohen as as Varg in this movie. Varg like, hated that. Like all every, every every time he goes, my name's not Christian, it's Varg. Like <laughs> like oh, it was perfect. Just just nailing Varg with that it makes me very happy. But I think um for for me the scene that really like really kind of sells like the the these weird inconsistencies in in, in Varg's character is is the the interview with the reporter. Yes. And oh like, my goodness! We, that we, scene we, we is see him incredible. Like, like, like he bumps his head on the on the ram skull on the wall, and he's like, "Oh, ow!" And he's like, "Okay, no, wait. The sword's got to go here. I got to put my swastika flag. Okay, fold it this way. Set it up over there." And then the journalist gets in, and like the journalist just, just like Varg is just putty in this guy's hands, and he just crushes him. And and the the one the one line that's like, "Listen, anybody anybody can hang up a skull and grab a sword and and put up a swastika flag. You know what are you doing?" And then he just he just just completely extracts this narrative out of Varg when Varg was attempting to be like dark and mysterious. Right. His spooky I, torture I, dungeon. I really sorry, go on. Oh no. Yeah, his just his spooky torture dungeon and the journalist says, So you believe in paganism and Satanism and you're a Nazi? <laughs> That's a broad belief system. <laughs> Oh, it's amazing because the I, I was watching that I was watching it and I was like, "Wow, uh, there is so many journalists who now kind of approach like now now people don't put on the kind of corpse paint and hang up the Nazi flag now they get described as like the dapper Nazi in the Atlantic magazine, and I'm like, they they learned right because Varg's politics are absolutely sort of abhorrent and com- hilariously incoherent. Um, but now it's sort of like that layer of kind of performative irony is still something that you see, especially in far-right and kind of neo-fascist politics. Mm-hmm. But because it's migrated online, it's far easier for people to go, oh, it's just memes. It's just memes. It's just memes, guys. Come on. And, and you uh, still we didn't, you... Really, we, didn't, we didn't really mean all of this stuff. Yeah, and I mean, like, that, that attitude is still preve- pre- prevalent in certain sectors of the black metal scene. You get people who, in- instead of saying, like, it's just a frog meme, you know, normie, you get people who are like, oh, we're just, we're just trying to be evil. We're just trying to be cults, so of course we have to, like, advocate for genocide or something fucking ridiculous mm, like that. Yeah, that's happening this week while we're recording. Uh, yeah. A, a Finnish band called Horna, which has deep ties to uh, National Socialist black metal and uh, multiple, not just like one time. Maybe they did a Sieg Heil just to be edgy. Like they have repeated uh, mm. connections to uh, neo Nazis, and they're touring the U.S. About half of their shows were canceled. But uh, just a few days ago, I think it was Thursday, maybe uh, they played in Houston, Texas, and a member of uh, Adam Waffen Division was uh, photographed at that show. And when he was exposed by uh, ProPublica, I think. They had met him for an interview and they met him at a black metal show in Houston. And uh, like people were saying, oh, well, no, you don't understand. Horn is just trying to be edgy. There's trying to be uh, 
trying to push the envelope. It's like, no, you have actual neo-Nazis in a neo-Nazi organization that has committed multiple murders across the U.S. attending the show. Mm-hmm. It's not just irony. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad that that so many of Horner's shows have been shut down because fuck them and fuck their <laughs> shitty music. And yep. it's a yep. tragedy that anybody even housed them for a single fucking show. And it's sad because, like, before their connections were known, um, they they haven't always had the same lineup, so they haven't always had the same uh, belief system. But people that enjoy black metal and enjoy Horner, they, they make decent mm-hmm. music. And people will say, oh, well, no, I'm... I'm just in it for the riffs. I was like, yeah, but yeah. what's behind those riffs? Because like I've listened to mm. some Graveland songs that sound really good, but they are out and out neo-Nazis and I'm yeah. not going yep. to listen to them or give them any money. Uh, as, as we have consistently said on this show, uh, fascism gets no platform. Fascism doesn't get to be debated, ironically enjoyed. Like it's never just riffs. It never stays that way. Uh, so yeah, fuck them and, uh, fuck all the venues that decided that they would try and make a quick buck out of platforming people who, uh, don't deserve it. Uh, genuinely hilarious that, that most of the tour is getting shut, uh, shut down, uh, and long may that continue. I think that brings us on to talking about the politics of the black metal scene, um, and the politics that are in this film specifically, um, because there's clearly a kind of a conflict here between the two main characters, between Euronymous and Varg, right? Right, and... Uh, and oh, so maybe maybe you just want to kind of... Uh, yeah, maybe you can kind of explain that a little bit for people. Yeah, and uh, in interviews, um, Euronymous would go out of his way to say, we're not a political band. We don't have political uh, thoughts or pushing a political uh, ideology with this band. It's not a uh, platform for politics. We're in it because we we want to be true black uh, metal like we want to be scary and spooky but Euronymous himself uh, he was a like, he's the worst tanky ever like he's the most online tanky <laughs> <laughs> he was a a member of the Norwegian Communist Party um, I'm probably going to say this wrong uh, Road Undum it's uh, Red Youth and he was like an active member in it a long time member of uh, Red Youth but he wasn't anti-imperialist. He uh, like he told people in interviews, like, yeah, I'm in this because uh, Stalin was a great murderer. Like Stalin mm. killed so many people. It was so awesome. Like uh, I got a quote here, which is actually really cringy but funny because it maps so well to sometimes uh, like Twitter uh, <laughs> uh, online Twitter uh, yeah. communist. So he says. Uh, people know we're sick and we give a fuck but what we live and we die for is Stalinism we hate those peace and love and democracy ideas war, sodomy and dictation that's what we want we support all extreme and oppressed states like the old Albania, Iran, Kampuchea under the Red Kimers and so on people are dying and they are suffering we have studied so much economic theory from Marx and Engels and Lenin, Stalin and Mao that we know that the world will sooner or later become communistic the problem is that communism is fucking good for people. It's total freedom. <laughs> that, that's why we wish it never happens. The world can go to hell. We want the old Stalinist dictatorship. It was gray and misery and evil. The Berlin Wall shall rise again. 
so he was just so like six thousand a- retweets and <laughs> and a certain section of left twitter is going to be losing its mind right now i i, I know yes. so something we do on the show a lot is we tend to assign historical figures different posting jobs in, in the modern time but holy shit Euronymous would have been like the most loathsome Twitter tanky possible. <laughs> Damn, and that was one hell of a quote. Holy shit. <laughs> so uh, that being like uh, uh, next to Varg, which uh, Varg grew up um, partially in uh, Iraq. He, he lived in Baghdad for a while because his mother was in the oil industry. And he said that that's what made him uh, conscious of like white identity it's because he was the one white kid in this private uh, uh, Iraqi school. And it's not really clear, but I think that his mom worked directly for Hussein. And mm. uh, like he said that his nationalist ideas began when he, he lived there and like his dad had a, a swastika flag when they lived there for some reason. So that being like, He's already like a child Nazi and he's in this band with somebody who is the worst tanky ever. It's like <laughs> Mayhem was the most dialectic band possible. <laughs> like, I, I didn't know then, Hegelian black metal was a thing. <laughs> <laughs> generally, then, what do you think the kind of relationship of like the metal scene of the black metal scene is? to politics and how what what kind of way can we bring a kind of leftist view of this film and and the black metal scene into into the conversation well i don't think that uh, that the ideology like political ideology transfers very well into a musical format because yeah mm, like i said uh, there's songs that if you're if you don't know who is playing it um like the Dark Throne uh, riffs, they're good. But then you learn, oh, well, this is from Dark Throne and they're absolute fucking assholes. I'm not going to listen to mm-hmm. them anymore because talent does not equal uh, good politics. So yeah, just like I, I enjoy uh, anti-fascist and anti-racist black metal, they sound really good, but their politics aren't necessarily uh, like right there when you're listening to it. Like you have to have preconceived ideas that like, Don Raid or like Neckbeard Death Camp are singing or playing about like smashing Nazi skulls when the music sounds good it, it sounds good and that's unfortunate and that's why people say oh well, we're not a, a political band just listen to the riffs mm. yeah I think there's um there, 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 there's some utility in like like the more the more that like um like red and black metal and things like neckbeard death camp and gaylord start to um become more prominent in the scene and hopefully uh come to eclipse uh like uh nsbm i, I think there, there's there's something to be said for the political utility of these things as tools to uh, get people on board with anti-fascism because maybe there's like a teenager out there and they're like oh gee whiz pops this black metal sure is good have you heard of gaylord they say the fascists are bad and then like that <laughs> sets them down a path you know uh, that 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 leads them somewhere positive. I, I think there's there, there's some political utility there, but like Nestor, you're absolutely right. Like translating political discourse into like three minutes and forty one seconds of riffs is a very fraught prospect. But it's a really good platform, like if you have a visual medium to go along with. Mm-hmm. It. So that's where uh, like 
give interviews and you're you're absolutely anti-fascist, you're anti-racist, or you have like neckbeard death camps, like uh, stomping on swastikas and shit like that. That's where mm-hmm. like you show that your politics in your uh, your image, but really it doesn't translate into the notes that you're playing on your guitar or the beats you're hitting on your drum. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I guess especially in like a musical mode that's intentionally very like inaudible as an aesthetic, it's really hard to have uh, lyrics that go one way or another. I mean, one thing I would say though is like, like, uh, like horror. I think a lot of black metal is like deeply kind of viscerally effective, right? Yeah. This is this is maybe why it's difficult to kind of past the politics of it and why there needs to be a kind of critical eye put upon it because like you know it like you want to give yourself over to the riff right you want to you want to be scared you want as i have said repeatedly horror and i would i would class black metal in there too wants to do things to your body um and in a way it does kind of bypass your kind of conscious thought but maybe it is a good way of kind of getting people to think about what kind of appeals are being made to them as as spectators as audience members as fans and why you know yeah definitely i think that um like i I certainly don't mean to discredit uh like the 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 like i guess like expressly politically oriented black metal bands like that's definitely true but I, I even think, you know, stuff which isn't explicitly political, because a lot of the stuff that we've talked about on this show is not explicitly political. True, yeah. But, I mean, it, but is something that can be used for kind of political ends as well. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I think that that, that goes back to, I think, our, our very first episode. One of the things we talked about is that, like, when we kind of don't claim territory as, as, as the left, like, you know, when we... So like a horror movie is like that has nothing to do with critical theory or critique or or our current political mm. condition. That's just for fun. Or like yeah, when yeah. we go like oh black metal like eh do you know it's whatever it's fun it's music but we can't we can't do anything with it we can't critique it it's outside of our purview. Like the 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 right is just going to be like oh well thanks we'll just take that then goodbye like, and then and then they're they're, <laughs> all, they're off to the races with something that we just kind of willfully dropped. No, I think that's really true and something that I think is that's why it's so encouraging to see so many uh anarchist communist socialist uh black metal bands kind of emerging right right yeah and it, yeah it's also uh doing it um well the, the black metal scene itself like punk and black metal metal uh as a whole like it's diy based it's like uh, mm-hmm. intrinsically anti-capitalist because you're mm. you're making music that is not uh, palatable to like masses of people. You're not making like a Carly Rae Jepsen album. So yeah, <laughs> it, it already has a built-in anti-capitalism. But what happens? Yeah, is that I mean, uh, Nesta, you 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 introduced me to Fenris through Twitter, oh, yes. and I found out they've not played live since like 1996 because they refused <laughs> to have anything to do with the music business. What? So maybe there is a kind of like base level anti-capitalism sort of baked into this, right? Well, there is a like that specific case I'm going to get to in a second. But like uh, in the movie, um, Varg says, why would we go on a world tour? That's selling out. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, that's that's part of the like the purity politics where uh, 
like, well, if we have fans, then that means that we're appealing to somebody. We don't want to appeal to anybody. We would, we want to be like merciless and just death drive. Um, but, uh, dark throne itself, like, um, the reason that Dark Throne doesn't tour is because uh, Fenris famously has held the same job since the early 90s. He's a, uh, a postal worker. Like, he sorts, sorts mail in Oslo, maybe. I don't remember where. But, um, yeah. Uh, but what's really cool is that they've basically released an album every two years since the first album in uh, 90, 91. And they have a new album coming out May of 2019. So like they're still producing music and it still sounds really good. But uh, uh, Fender has realized that, you know, this touring, it's just a capitalist mode. Like you go on tour for three, six months at most because they're a niche band. They're extreme metal. You're not going to get huge uh, arenas. You're not going to be Rolling Stones getting $500 a ticket. So he was, he was conscious of that. And, uh, the first three albums or two albums, I think maybe the third and fourth album, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, they had lyrics that were written by Varg, but it was before Varg stabbed Euronymous. So uh, hmm. they didn't realize how big of a shithead he was. And yeah. Varg had inter- uh, added this line in like their loner, uh, excuse me, in their liner notes that said something like um, true Aryan black metal or something like that. And they kind of got shit for it and, uh, Varg later, or uh, excuse me, um, Fenders later on said, well, you know, uh, that's more of like a Norwegian cultural thing because uh, anti-Semitism was so rampant in Norway that it was uh, mostly imperceptible. Like the Aryan mm. shit and the uh, smash the, the Jewish Christ shit. Like that was things like uh, if you say, oh, well, that guy's a loser in Norway at the time, at least they said, oh, that guy's a Jew. And they didn't mean it anti-Semitically, but that's how it is. It's like, it's so deeply anti-Semitic that they don't realize it's anti-Semitic. And Fenris later said, oh, well, no, I, you know, I, I toured a little bit. I got a world experience. I realized that's not something that I should have been putting out in the world. Jeez. Good, I, good I to guess... see him come around on that one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, better late than never. Let's, let's just say that. Um... I guess that means we should probably talk about talk about the antagonist of this film and the the, the one character in this film who is deeply unsettling uh, and has none of that kind of endearing uh, sort of like dorky young kid uh, energy and that's Varg, um, a, a, you know, a person who is still still in the world and is still. Mm-hmm. Has still uh, has only gotten worse. Only gotten that's, worse. That's... <laughs> uh, this was my first introduction to to Varg. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I would say I would have been very happy not knowing this. I would say that he's the most dorky because not only oh, is, good point. So uh, Burzum, uh, or how he says it, Burzum is uh, <laughs> it means darkness. It's pulled from a J.R.R. Tolkien line in Lord of the Rings, where inside yeah, the ring yep. it says. Yeah something something darkness i don't remember i've i read tolkien once um but like he built the entire burtson uh lyrical content from uh tolkien and like he even went as, so far as to like build this tabletop game where it's basically like tabletop world of warcraft or something 
Um, he is, is the, the worst. The, yeah, he's the most dorky of all of them. Oh man, fascism is just a loser ideology. So, so um, because like my academic career, I do game studies. I, I I went and took a look at Varg's tabletop role playing system, uh, just out of like this morbid curiosity, and like, holy shit! Like this is like the worst, most racist possible game I think I've ever seen. And like, winning the title for most racist game is like you gotta work <laughs> for that. That that's just not given away anymore. Holy shit, this was bad. And on top of everything, he picked Papyrus for the fucking font. Yes. Oh, uh, graphic design is his passion, clearly. <laughs> when, yeah, um, genuinely mad about that board game, by the way. It is fucking disgusting. So on his YouTube channel, which is basically his only outlet now because he's actually oh of course of course yeah. he's a youtuber <laughs> of fucking course he's a youtuber so he he actually dropped the uh the burzum name he's no longer going to make music as burzum and he he decided this in the worst possible way he challenged a man that was commenting on his facebook or on his uh, excuse me on his uh, youtube channel that his car was faster than vargs and because yeah. vargs was made by a uh white eurocentric Commun- former former communist country that his was faster than some uh, cheap uh, like punched out uh, capitalist car whatever this guy was driving so he bet the only existing CD copy of his first album which was put out by Death Like Silence from Euronymous and he put that up as the wager and if uh, he lost or if he won then the other guy would have to say oh your car is better so it was like a weird uh, discrepancy in the wagers. Man he, does not know how to gamble. He, yeah, <laughs> he lost, and this guy got the CD. Like he held the deal, sent him this only existing copy of the CD, and then he sold it on uh, Discog.com uh, for like $1,500 or something. But now yeah. he, he's declared that he's no longer ever going to use the Burzum name. It's been retired. He lost it in a car race. Ah. It's like the worst Fast and the Furious uh, series oh ever. What an, what an absolute loser! Oh, that's rough, man. Wait, yeah, that, uh, that would be that would be the worst possible Fast and the Furious title, unless we cast Vin Diesel as the guy who beats him. Because because if it's Vin Diesel versus like another dumb YouTube Nazi, I I, I would be here for that film. Well, I want to see Vin Diesel and Varg play Varg's game because Vin Diesel is really deep into Dungeons and Dragons as well. Yes, he is. Vin Vin Diesel (laughs) kicks so much ass. As an unrelated side note, I am a super huge Vin Diesel fan. (laughs) (laughs) So, oh man, Varg just sounds like he's only gotten uh, more sort of pathetic. Yes. Well, he created his own Because like in this film, there's this sort of, there's this kind of like, the the reason I I say that, that that he's unsettling is because it's like the conviction of a zealot, right? He's a convert mm-hmm. to to black metal, uh, and then Euronymous has that moment where he realizes like, oh man, this guy has gone even further than me because he's now talking about like blowing up cathedrals and and burning people. And he goes, uh, maybe we should just make music. That'd be fine. But like everything since then. Like what an absolute loser! <laughs> what an absolute loser! Yeah, and I think that that especially ties in with the uh, 
the authentic idea because converts are always the most zealous. Like, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, no yeah. one likes uh, converts because they they want to be the, the top dog. They want to show that they have the most knowledge. So it becomes a sensitive subject for people that have like put in the work, and we see this with uh, like political work as well. Like um, the the loudest Marxist in the room has read two chapters of Capital. So yeah. no mm. one is born a Marxist. No one is born a, a black metal musician. But somehow it's forbidden uh, to view that you've come around to the idea that like oh I don't know everything, but I I have some ideas that we could discuss, and like the loudest person in the room is also usually the most ignorant. And that's what Varga is in this movie. Like he's saying, Oh, well, you know, we should gas them all. And then everybody in sitting in the bar, is just like, Oh yeah. Um, no. <laughs> yeah. Not. I love, I love that scene. Everyone's just like, um, uh, like, like this massive awkward silence. Just like that. Just, just like that. Yeah. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> so, uh, the uh, concert foot, uh, if I can get it out of my mouth, the concert footage that they use that uh, was supposed to be like the infamous Leipzig show. What I didn't realize was that in 2016, before uh, Ockerlin had announced that he was uh, taking over the project, because he wasn't the first director, he took it over from someone else I don't remember the name of. But um, so Ockerlin has a history of like big time music videos, like he did Madonna and Lady Gaga and. Uh, he did like this Paul McCartney documentary and he mm-hmm. made the movie Spun. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, he yeah. released basically what that uh, concert footage is, was a video from 2016 for uh, Metallica's um, song, uh, what is it? Uh, Man Unkind. So like it's a full music video with full production and everything, but uh, it's the guys dressed in the, the Mayhem makeup singing a Metallica song. And I vaguely Holy remember shit, that's a miracle. <laughs> I vaguely remembered this. Like, why is Metallica mocking Mayhem? Like, what what the hell is going on? <laughs> and then, like, seeing this movie, and like, that looks vaguely familiar. And I, I was looking up something. I happened to come upon it. And I was like, oh, holy shit! I remember that Metallica video. That was awful. Like, why did they do that? So it's, that is so it's awesome. A weird, it's a weird, like, unbelievable creation. I think there's some there's some there's some fascinating kind of tensions in this film between the kind of I think authenticity is a big thing of it. I think that kind of zealous zealous commitment to something, or like that zealous commitment to like the the to nothing, yeah. which um, maybe I was maybe I was giving them too much credit, like comparing them to the myth of Sisyphus. But you know <laughs> what? Uh, maybe you weren't charitable. giving enough credit, or maybe you were giving too much credit to the myth of Sisyphus. take that albert camus (laughs) yeah um yeah so ash what were you what were you gonna say sorry oh so i i was just gonna say like yeah like there's um you know like like this 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 movie as a piece has this interesting commitment to some sense of 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 a mythologized history but also a, a detachment from like certain implications of that and you see that in um Faust, who kind of winds up becoming Varg's conscript, or like like Varg Varg's right hand man, or something throughout the the course of the yeah. film. Oh, okay. And, well, no, that that's not uh, Faust. They those actors look some uh, familiar. Oh, or shit, did I get that? I it, in my yeah, head. it's uh, in the credits. He's actually not even named 
as uh, I think he's named as like Varg's driver, but he was <laughs> he was uh, shit. I can't even remember his name now. Um, but yeah, that, that's not Faust. But they do look similar. They hang out together and like they're the same height, same build. But uh, sorry to catch you off. I'm doing no, the no no no. The, the, there's that thanks for catching me trivia that. that I promised. Did, did <laughs> all those damn long-haired black metal kids all looking the same? <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, so, so so we have we have all this tension, and, and when Faust uh, uh, murders a gay man in a park, um, it was the, the, the Olympic movie... Park. Or what's up? It was the Olympic Park, so the Olympics were going to happen in like mm-hmm. nine months uh, after that murder. Yeah, and it's it's interesting to me how the the movie the movie kind of plays that as as another effectively like another one of the black metal church burnings in a way like yeah like like it 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 does everything it can to remove sort of like we we get a very intensely graphic murder right but then after that it's it's kind of um codified and explored the same way we look at the church burnings right we know people have died because we see that if you're paying attention you can you can catch that briefly in the news reports but but these are are more kind of like violent and graphic, but ultimately kind of empty signifiers of like their their black metal terrorism or something. And I, and, I, and I found that interesting because you know like this is this is the murder of like a highly oppressed member of society, and and the movie kind of wraps that person up the same way they wrap up like empty buildings on fire. Mm-hmm. When I think the. Uh you mentioned you wanted to talk about Anne Marie, and I think that yes, with um, Faust stabbing that guy uh, in Lillehammer, um, maybe like two scenes before that is when uh, Euronymous first listens to the Burzum album, like the the tape that it gives him. It's the first one, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, Euronymous climbs down off his bunk, and he's just wearing underwear, and there's this longing uh, gaze that Faust is giving. Uh, uh, Euronymous in his underwear as he goes to pee in the sink and then yeah. just a couple of scenes later is when he kills the gay man and like John says horror wants to do things to your body and he he's talking about oh I, I wonder what it's like to stab a human body and he repeatedly mm. penetrating oh, this gay guy like he's mm. penetrating uh, what, 37 times he stabbed him and yeah. like in the, the scene like there's no emotion on Faust's face he's just mechanically stabbing him to see what it feels like like penetrating his yeah. body with a long knife and you know, uh, it's it's oh go, go on go on and <laughs> so there's there's a metallica reference within the movie itself not including the the weird concert footage so when they uh Euronymous and varg go to burn down that first church like varg pulls out the dead bomb um after they set it on fire <laughs> they're standing outside they're like pushing over uh, tombstones Mm-hmm. And then uh, Euronymous says, am I evil? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. <laughs> That's yeah. a Metallica song <laughs> from Kill em All. Yeah. And then they give, like, there's like this three or four second uh, shot right after that where they give each other fuck me eyes and like, what yep. is going on here? Yep. So I think that the yep. reason that Anne-Marie was put into the movie was to kind of damp down the homophobic uh, ideas that like constantly Vargas saying that uh, Euronymous was gay and that's why he killed him that's why, like, Euronymous was coming on to him and he defended himself. Like, there's multiple stories that Varg has come up with. So I think that Ockerlin put, not only just because it's 
fan service with the nudity, but also to move the story along. Uh, Anne Marie was put in there as a love interest to sort of uh, step over these claims that Varg has made that like multiple people in his scene were gay. So I'm, I'm it's a lot going on here. I'm really glad you brought brought this up, and and that that is a great point that there's kind of this um tension tension let's say between um varg and euronymous because i think um it, uh, this this is like uh homo social this is between men right homosocial bonding you know, yeah. you know varg varg sees euronymous as like this idol this person that he wants to be but he's coming to realize that euronymous is a fraud and euronymous sees sees varg as as a threat right so someone who he can like if he can find a way to control him he can he can use him for publicity but if he can't, there's going to be real trouble. So these two have this this v- incredibly interesting power dynamic between the two because they, they 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 keep altering who who's in charge, who's got power over the other one, and they they keep they keep swapping. You know, they're 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 dedicated switches. They keep topping and bottoming even with each other. And, <laughs> yeah, and because because they can't open up emotionally to each other to kind of face these issues, that's all mediated through Anne Marit. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> And it's very telling that one of the most um, repeated things that Euronymous says to her is, "Are you going to take my picture?" Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, this is this is a way of getting leverage over Varg, right? Because it's like, well, I'm the one who's in charge. I'm the one who who is getting the publicity. Um, after the interview with Kerrang, he's like, "You should be happy." When he meets Varg, he's like, "You should be happy. You're on the front cover." And Varg's like, no, you're the one who said that you invented all of this. And so there is definitely, there is this very uh, switchy relationship the two of them have because they can't, and all of that kind of tension and desire gets sublimated into violence, right? Yeah. And it's a violence that's directed outwards against the kind of external authority figure, in this case, the church. Yeah, I find, um, so, so something interesting about the, the placement of anne Marie's character in, in the film is that like, you know, like like I think Nestor, you mentioned much earlier in the podcast that uh, she, she's really there to move the plot along, and I, I think that's just so incredibly true because, like, uh, you know, we, in in the final act when Euronymous, you know, realizes that like he's he's got to hang this shit up, you know, th- things have gone way past out of hand. Yeah, yeah, and like like, but but how does he realizes that? How does he realize that? He realizes that through 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 the love of a good woman. Like, like this, this is, this is like the, the, the standard, like Gothic plot where, where Jane Eyre has to tame the wildness out of a man and, and, and settle him down into something, you know, marriageable. And, and like, it is just, uh, I guess both, both obviously misogynistic as hell, but also interesting to see like this, this ancient Gothic plot resurfacing in the Lords of Chaos true crime documentary in 2018. There's also also the, the cutting of the hair scene. Mm -hmm where he's having all of these kind of flashbacks to his sort of long repressed trauma. Yeah. And and there's this, you know, because when the hair's all cut off, it's like you actually see Kieran Culkin. You see the kind of authentic, there is a kind of moment of authenticity there. And he's this young, attractive, very vulnerable looking man. And it's like, well, obviously this is, this is where Varg turns up with, you know, his uh, his knife to stab him some 20 or 30 times in the back yeah and i think sorry go the on. only times that we see uh Euronymous with uh, prescription glasses is when he's with Anne Marie. so it's like a oh a my form god of, good uh, point. vulnerability yeah 
Oh yeah, that is such a good point about his vulnerability that that you know obviously because of like you know like 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 how patriarchy warps the emotional you know expressive ability of men that he can only open up to her, and she's an entirely fictitious fictitious character who who likely had no real analog. Yeah, there that I mean. Yeah, yeah. I think that that there is this kind of repetition of tired old fairly misogynistic trope but this inability i mean metal is catharsis right it's a it's a an expression of something that can't be put into uh any other words or terminology that's what that's what brings these disaffected uh alienated and atomized neoliberal subjects into putting on the corpse paint and the and the spiked leather cuffs and the and the collars to to scream about their angst is because there's a kind of catharsis that can't be can't be gotten to any other way. So no wonder they had to invent a character as a way of as a way of you know re- avoiding the kind of direct confrontation with all of that that's kind of built into it, right? Built into their relationship, built into the band even. So she's like the Anne-Marie is like the. Uh, I don't know if John will get this reference because it's a, a U.S. Uh, insurance company but there's a, a, a like a mascot like a pitch man that he calls himself mayhem and like he he shows up and he's like i'm mayhem and i'm here to set your garage on fire or i'm mayhem and i'm here to drive through red lights because i can and like that level of uh appropriation <laughs> capitalist class is it's the exact opposite of black metal like the DIY spirit that you're supposed to mm-hmm. like be rebelling mm-hmm. against. And the only true cult is if you can consume this harsh, isolating uh, noise, like Anne Marie is there to soften that, like be the, the, um, I almost said isotope, but that's not correct. Be the, uh, the fluid with which like the black ink spreads through Mm. Yeah, I find that I find that to be a really interesting observation, especially given the kind of um, broad, broader context of of not only this film and black metal in general, but also our episode. Like we're three dudes here, we are talking about uh, a black metal and black metal, much like punk and much like rock and much like you know music in general, has been heavily gate gate kept by men. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that this film uses a woman to kind of like like dilute the true meaning of of black metal and like take the cult right out of Euronymous and then he's like wearing glasses and he cuts his hair and he starts wearing like normal sweaters as as he gains proximity to that relationship with her absolutely he's being uh domesticated instead of the feral beast that stands on stage yeah and with with the ultimate irony being is that like he he's never been you know, like the the feral beast has always been a costume he puts on. He's always been the sweater, yeah, sw- sweaters and glasses been, doofus. He's always been a kid who who grew up in the suburbs in a nice kind of, you know, the middle class. Like from a capitalist point of view, that costume is completely inexplicable because the capitalist system would go, well, you've gotten everything, you know. it's This is the greatest possible system. This is the greatest possible time to be alive. What you, What's the problem? But... You know, he's always been he's always been a product of of kind of bourgeois capitalist suburbia. But and I think try as it might, you know, capitalism can't expunge and can't disguise the basic kind of psychic toll it takes on people. 
Yeah, and I think that is shown really like it's overshadowed because of the scene, but I think that's shown really well when uh, just before Dead kills himself, you see Euronymous coming out of his uh, parents' home and like they give him a plant and like supposed yep. to nurture this plant <laughs> and he throws it in the trash and then we immediately go to this most brutal, unflinching suicide scene. Uh, and I always, I also thought of that the moment where the police turn up to arrest Varg. Oh yeah, he runs uh, like a coward. Yeah, yep. <laughs> and you know, and the police turn up and there's like a voice from outside going like, "Who's that at the door?" Yep. <laughs> and it's like, you know, just just as with Euronymous, Varg too is a product of, you know, successful bourgeois middle classes. You know, someone who's travelled for work and has made quite a lot of money and has come back to to kind of prosper and raise their family and this kind of like i think that the point about catharsis is really important because it shows the fact that kind of like you know mark fisher talked about this a lot this this idea of like capitalist realism doesn't can't is incapable of reckoning with the kind of psychic effects of living under capitalism and so that disaffection that anger that alienation has to be channeled in a direction that is something other than the kind of nihilistic posturing or the kind of paganistic fascism there has to be a kind of chance that a way out and that's through kind of class consciousness through solidarity through a, a genuinely left-wing politics uh, because all this film can do is go well here's a love interest uh that's all we've got that's that's the only possibility of negating all of this that put you into the position of inventing black metal in the first place yeah. <laughs> and i think this is a really good uh point to where pointing out that uh when lords of chaos was released to the theaters the first week of february um so it, i think it released nationwide uh, on a limited basis of course on the 7th but on february 1st of 2019 uh vice media which uh, created this movie and put it out, paid the neo-Nazi Michael Moynihan all this money to make this movie. Uh, they mm. announced that they were laying off 10% of their staff, which yeah. equaled about 250 mm -hmm. employees. And many of them had been unionized just recently. They created the vice union and uh, yeah. the company announced that it was going to focus on the studio division, which made the movie. Um, it also just recently sold a political drama starring Adam driver. The, Star Wars emo boy uh, at Sundance for $14 million to Amazon. And then the other departments that they were focusing on were news and digital division, TV division, and a company called Virtue, which is their advertising agency. And it's incredible that at the same time, this movie that no one asked for, no one wanted people mm -hmm. that are, that know the story, are like, please don't do this. And the uh, vice is like, no, we're putting this movie out and we're firing 250 people. Yeah, mm -hmm. that is capitalist realism. <laughs> Absolutely, and I think I'm like, why watching this film? Like the the end of this movie is like, you you take the, like the volume knob on capitalist realism and you turn it to eleven, because it goes to eleven, and mm -hmm. and you get the end of this film right because the end of this film is like Euronymous lays dead, stabbed multiple times by someone who he just tried to reach out to emotionally for the first time. Uh, perhaps in his entire life and, and be like hey like let's let's resolve our issues let's you know actually confront this and 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 you know panning out from his corpse and we get this voiceover where he's like 
where he's like, I, I may have just, you know, been stabbed to death after trying to open up emotionally for the first time in my life, but don't feel bad about me. I created black metal. <laughs> don't be a poser, you know? And like, like, yeah, like they go, they go for the SLC Punk ending where, where it's just like final conclusion, none, which works in SLC Punk because SLC Punk is a fake movie with fake characters that has only loose reference to reality. But in this movie, like that man literally died that way. Like these people literally killed a gay dude in the park because they could like they, they are. This, this isn't like the kind of movie where you can be like, like, oh, man, only posers get stabbed. And then like you close on a rocks <laughs> rock lick like 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 that is like no conclusion at the end of this film besides to repeat the cycle eternally. Yeah. And why I like that the, the very last line is something that. Euronymous was known to say uh, repeatedly was what the fuck have you done lately and that's like a, a call is like do better don't fuck this up do better than I did mm-hmm. and uh, don't just fall into nihilistic uh, I don't give a shit about anybody else this is just fucking brutal and we're gonna make the most brutal shit possible because Stalin's gulags were the the, the epitome of human invention yeah uh, you know what the most metal thing is? What's that? Socialism. Yeah. <laughs> like, I think I think there is something to that, though, right? You know, this kind of like, well, don't do that. Well, what are the choices? What are the choices? The choices are you either commit to this kind of like aesthetic nihilism where the only thing to do is kind of like be the most extreme or you commit to Varg's uh, Odin-worshipping fucking pathetic heap of shit or <laughs> you know it's it's the it's the choice is the same as it ever was which is socialism or barbarism and it's like well uh if we can get that together let's let's fuck it let's 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 make the right choice let's get realistic socialism and atavistic barbarism <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to uh, mention Varg's, or not Varg, Euronymous's mustache is uh, the Mick Mars. (laughs) Okay. His little wispy Mick Mars mustache is incredible because I think he grew that about the same time that Motley Crue was getting big. And he was like, hey, these guys are going to have their own movie on on on-demand video sometime soon, too. I should probably grow that. Um, (laughs) No, that... That's a terrible ending. Do that. No. <laughs> oh no, that's perfect. That's perfect. We're gonna stop right there on that point with no rap and no outro music and just kind of the fried. No, the the final thing, the final thing that we wanted to we wanted to cover, though, given given the kind of, uh, you know, I get it. I kind of get I get the appeal after this conversation and watching the film. I get it, um, and I get the kind of cathartic thrill of it. So let's let's kind of quickly maybe the two of you can kind of shout out some bands who are you know not going around murdering uh lgbt people not burning down churches and are not fascist pieces of shit um let's have some kind of socialist and anarchist black metal recommendations please all right well you go first okay yeah i'm gonna get the true cult ones Oh shit! Is this is this my test? Oh goddamn it! I'm gonna, I'm gonna come off as like a poser now. I won't na- I won't name the true cult uh, anarchist and socialist black metal bands. Um, yeah, I think I think um, for me lately, I've been listening to a lot of like, 
I mean, neck neckbeard death camp goes without saying. They're they're, they're, they're yeah. kind of the I, maybe loudest is the right word given the context. Uh, like left left black metal band, uh, Feminazgul. Also, yes. I mean, like for the name pun alone, ten out of ten right there. And she's Good an incredible stuff. author as well. I did not know this. Yeah, she writes. Uh, sign up for her Patreon and you get like a weekly uh, short story. But she's written like four or five novels already. And they're all like wiki based. That's amazing. Holy cow. I'm going to have to dig into that. But then there's also um, uh, Pope Richard's work, especially Gaylord. Yes. Yes. Shout out to Pope Richard. <laughs> I'm really digging yeah. the Suicide Wraith. Uh, I hope that he uh, right now he's dealing with the death of a family member. And I think mm-hmm. that's what I don't want to say that he's doing this. He has actually said this himself. Uh, Suicide Wraith was going to be dark, but it's going to be like a thousand times darker now because a death of a family member. Mm. That is is pretty dark. <laughs> yeah. But then there's also, uh, um, I guess, Cloud Rat, Closet Witch, Appalachian Terror Unit, Lib Trigger, Book of Sand. Like there's there's a fistful of 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 black metal to to varying degree bands to to feast upon, dear listeners. If you're looking for something that's not shout fash. out to uh, the uh, anarchist from Liverpool, Dawn Raid who I got introduced to a little while ago and are so good. Nice. Excellent. Uh, just starting to get bigger in the States as well. Uh, their album, The Unlawful Assembly, is really, really, really good. Yeah, got to give it up to, like, the naming conventions in left black metal <laughs> because they are, like, knocking out of the park. Like, my favorite song by Gaylord is uh, Neo-Nazi Metalheads Will Be Hanged and Their Broken Corpses Openly Mocked. <laughs> and just like not only is that brutal and it, it appeals to me in that respect but oh, holy shit what a fucking title yeah yeah uh neckbeard death camp have really good song titles oh as my well, god right? yes uh white nationalism is for basement dwelling losers yep. uh is extremely good uh incel warfare <laughs> is amazing <laughs> And and of course the uh, the dick pic anthem. Please respond. Parentheses. I showed you my penis. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, I guess I guess if our listeners want to keep up on like uh, black metal news and also some some really good anarchist writing, I recommend um, looking into the writing of and following on Twitter Grim Kim. Mm-hmm. A, a lot of a lot of great stuff, and it's where I get all of my black metal recommendations. <laughs> Uh, yeah, shout out to, to Kim Kelly, who also writes a brilliant column on labor for Teen Vogue, of all places. That makes me so happy that Teen Vogue is like the beating heart of left journalism right now. <laughs> uh, is there anything else we can we, we want to kind of bring up right here at the end? Well, I haven't given my musical uh, Oh, let's do it. Well, do it. L- lay, them, lay them on us. Okay, well... D- most of them were already named. Uh, Richard Weeks, uh, Pope Richard, his Black and Death Records. Like, I think he puts out an album a week or an EP a week. Just absolutely incredible. Just a machine putting out so much good music. But uh, he does a, a, a compilation called Woman. And Woman 3 is coming out soon. It has a lot of oh, really great yeah. people on it. Um, mm. One being narcotic-fueled lesbian orgy, which is... <laughs> incredible grind just like 
<laughs> really short songs, but really just like that's actually brutal. Um, so in Cosmic Church, and then a hardcore band called Terminal Nation from Arkansas, and uh, all three of those, I think they've been in rotation uh, recently. But also, there's a I can't really vouch for this person's politics because all I can find is just the band camp. And I was a little suspicious because it is billed as uh, black metal um, heritage, like Scottish heritage, which I was suspicious of. But yeah. uh, SOAR, so it's S-A-O-R, um, really good. Like mm. It has like uh, bagpipes within the blast beats. Okay, that's interesting. <laughs> oh, hell yeah. So yeah, Don Raid, Nectar, Death Camp, uh, Femme Nazgul, all of those incredible bands to check out if you're looking for uh bands that are not racist or fascist in any way what we might do i think this might be quite cool is we might put links to some uh band camps in the show notes for oh, this totally. episode yeah. so do send us your your um favorites nester and we'll make sure that they get included and if there is music that you like, please uh, please encourage those artists. Please support them. Please buy their music because um, that's going to make a big difference to challenging the cultural hegemony of a kind of fascist uh, death metal scene. Absolutely, this has been this has been fantastic. I have loved this episode. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, Please, everybody, go and listen to Black Man of Magic. Please do go and support their work, uh, bailing people out of prison, tearing down the prison complex that exists all across the uh, capitalist empire. Um, and thank you so much again for coming on and sharing sharing your, your encyclopedic knowledge with us. Well, thank you. And uh, people can follow me on Twitter at uh, Black Banner Pod and the... Uh, uh, blackbannermagic.libsyn.com is the, the address. Mm-hmm. And I'll be putting out an industrial album uh, next week. So uh, probably about the same time this comes out called Hellgazer. And it's uh, G-A-Y-Z-E-R Hellgazer. Hell That's amazing. Ooh. I am so excited. Hell yes. Hell oh, man. Where, 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 will, uh, where will our listeners and definitely myself included be able to find Hellgazer once it comes out? Uh, it's... Uh, H-E double hockey sticks G-A-Y-Z-E-R dot bandcamp dot com so hellgazer dot bandcamp dot com I am please, I love please, industrial please. I'm so excited yeah please send us the bandcamp so we can put that in the show notes because uh, both Ash and I are going to check that out when it comes when the album drops that is so exciting <laughs> yeah. and feel feel free to take a moment to plug any uh, Patreons or or any, any uh, ways our listeners can support the Omaha Bail Fund or any of the other projects you're a part of so I deleted my Patreon in a, a manic fit, which was partially feeding the bail fund. But the mm-hmm. the Omaha uh, Freedom Fund itself is omahafreedomfund.wordpress.com. You'll find a donation mm-hmm. link there, and we'll get people out of county jail. And we will put uh, we'll put that link in the show notes as well. Yes, and we, um, we encourage our to- listeners to uh, get, get out there and support all of the things we have just mentioned, whether it's black yep. metal or the Omaha Freedom Project. <laughs> But otherwise, thank you so much again for uh, coming on. It's been great. Thank you. This show is a highlight of my week. I I do uh, like solitary work. Like I do electronics work by myself. So I, I'm able to listen to podcasts. And this is definitely the highlight. Every time there's a new horror vanguard, I'm excited to listen to this.
Oh, that makes me so happy to hear. That is great. Thank you so much. Awesome. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about a movie no one ever wanted made. <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, God, that's two in a row for us now. We got we to gotta start talking about movies people liked again. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for tuning in, creeps and comrades. And remember, stay spooky.